Good morning uh, to those of you who are not at Super Bowl party yet. Uh, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming out today. Um, uh, my name is Brent, and uh, good to meet you. Um, we're, uh, so we're going to pray before we get into it, so uh, let's, let's bow together. Father, we thank you for um, uh, giving us your word, uh, for giving us your word to speak into our hearts and guide our lives, and we pray, God, this morning as we look at it, that you would um, indeed guide us, that you would uh, help us make better decisions, help us, Lord, um, know what pleases you and what makes for the good life as we, as we look at your word. And uh, we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're, we're still in a series in the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we've been following uh, this character, Nehemiah, all the way through this, uh, this uh, book um, as he rebuilds the wall of Jerusalem. Uh, that was his task that God gave him. And so um, we've seen that, that so far he's been um, encountering threats as he builds the wall. And so there was an external threat. We saw that um, the enemies of God hurled insults and discouragement at Nehemiah. Last week you saw there was an internal threat where there was a social breakdown within the, the walls of Jerusalem. And now, uh, this uh, chapter 6 in Nehemiah, we're going to look at one more threat. Now the walls here are almost done. Nehemiah is almost done with his job. And there's one more threat that's hurled at Nehemiah and all, of, all the Jews as they're building here right before they're finished. And it's the threat, I think it's so relevant, it's a threat that all of us deal with. The threat that they deal with is uh, the threat of fear. I mean, isn't fear so relevant? Probably most of us deal with fear, anxiety on a daily basis, don't we? Um, it was even W.H. Auden, who was a famous uh, poet, wrote a famous poem uh, back in, I think it was 1947, called The Age of Anxiety. He called the modern age the age of anxiety. So all of us, in some ways, were dealing with fear and anxiety of all different sorts, and uh, this is the threat that, that Nehemiah is going to face here in chapter 6. Now, as we get into the teaching today, um, I want to begin by just kind of defining terms. Uh, fear, when, when, we, when we think about it, is not inherently a bad thing. There is a good fear and a bad fear. And so uh, there is good fear that's actually constructive, that, that protects us, that keeps us out of danger. And um, it's a warranted fear, and it's a, in some ways a life-giving fear. Uh, my brother uh, told me a story a couple weeks ago about how he was driving to church in the morning. My brother's a pastor, and he's a pastor in Albuquerque, and uh, it was 5 a.m. Sunday morning. He's driving to church to get ready for his sermon, and this uh, car pulls up next to him, and it's a group of gangbangers, and they, they roll down their window, and they point a gun at my brother in his car, and uh, my brother tells the story, and he says, Brent, I was terrified. And he said, I knew there was nothing to do. He said, I couldn't speed up. My brother drives a 1979 Mercedes-Benz diesel that goes like 0 to 20 in about 15 minutes. So that wasn't an option. And so what he did is, fueled by fear, he slammed on the brakes, and he shot the thing in reverse. And uh, he got back to the nearest intersection and pulled into a crowded gas station, and he got away. And I was like, Josh, how did you do that? Like, that was such clear thinking. You know, how did you, how did you uh, pull off something like that? And he said, Brent, it was good old-fashioned fear. He said, I was terrified. And so there's a good fear that keeps us out of danger. Um, in fact, the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord 
which is obviously a good thing. And, and Nehemiah, you know, um, he is galvanized into action to rebuild the walls in some ways because he feared that his city would not be rebuilt. You know, and so uh, this good fear, it, it moves us forward, it galvanizes us into action. But there's also an unhealthy fear. There's a bad sort of fear. And unlike the good fear, this fear stops us in our tracks. Uh, this fear is a fear that paralyzes us, that debilitates us, that keeps us from moving forward. You know, if you're in the road and a car is coming and, and you need to get out of the way, you have, you're afraid and you get clarity, and that's a good fear. A bad fear is when the, is, is when it's, the fear stays with you. And there's almost like an abiding feeling that you're fragile and your life is in danger all the time. And it's this sort of fear that is so dangerous. In fact, this is the reason why the, the Bible is always warning us against this sort of fear. Um, you know, the, common, the most common command in the Bible is what? Anybody know? Do not be afraid. And all the great men and women of the Bible, God is always telling them to not be afraid. You know, from the very beginning, as soon as God begins to call people to do great things and to follow him, he begins to immediately tell them, don't be afraid. And so you have Moses, uh, you have Abraham and, and King David, all of them, God told them, don't be afraid. And then you have the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God is always telling them not to be afraid. And then you've got in the New Testament, Jesus, right before he died, you remember he gathered all of his disciples, and what did he tell them? He said, I'm going away, don't, don't be afraid. So this fear, it, it's something that, that can paralyze us in God's work. Um, I was reading a sermon called Overcoming Fear this past week by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And this was a sermon given right before uh, Hitler rose to power, he was in Germany. And it, he began his sermon by saying this, the Bible the gospel, Christ, the church, the faith, all are one great battle cry against fear in the lives of human beings. So the Bible's really against this bad fear, and it's always warning us against it. And so the question I want to look at this morning is, how do we battle fear in our lives? Uh, how, do we, how do we fight against this debilitating tear, fear that threatens to stop us in our tracks? Now, Nehemiah 6 is all about fear, like I said, and it's all about this threat of fear. In fact, uh, three times throughout the passage, uh, we learn that uh, God's enemies are trying to make them afraid and to terrify them. In fact, the chapter ends with, uh, there was Tobiah who wanted to make me, the last word, I'm sorry, this is verse 14, he wanted to make me afraid. It's a chapter about fear. And what I want to do here, I think what we see in the chapter is three ways that fear works on us and how to fight it. In the chapter, we're going to see three strategies that fear um, uses to, to debilitate us and how we can fight each one of those strategies. And it starts kind of low level with, dis with distraction, and then it moves a little bit higher to intimidation, and then finally to debilitation. So that's what fear does. It distracts us. If that doesn't work, it'll intimidate us. And if that doesn't work, it'll debilitate us. We're going to look at all three of those and how to fight them <clears throat> in our lives. And so let's look at the first one. Fear distracts. Verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach, in, no breach left in it, although up to this time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together in 
Hekaphrim, in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work. I will not come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent me four times this way. And I answered them in the same manner. And so they're using fear on him. The first way they use it is through distraction. That's the first thing fear does. Now notice uh, uh, who are the characters here. There's uh, Tobiah and Sanballat. We were introduced to them earlier. They were the ones that were uh, threatening the people of God earlier in Nehemiah. Uh, But before the threats that they were using were very overt, you know. They were hurling insults and discouragement. Uh, They were also using physical force, like they're trying to hurt them physically. But what they do here is they begin to use a less overt form of, of, of a threat here. This is a very subtle threat. They're simply trying to distract Nehemiah off the wall. What are they saying? They're saying, uh, come down and meet with us. I mean, this is innocuous, right? Come down and meet with us. We just want to talk to you. There's something that concerns you down here off the wall. So come off the wall. We just want to talk about some, some, some concerns that we have. And what are they doing? They're trying to distract them. And notice here, it says that they want to bring Nehemiah down to the plain of Ono. And uh, where is the plain of Ono? You know, scholars have no idea where the plain of Ono is. Um, The only thing we know about it is that this is where Yoko was from. Um, That was a horrible joke. Last service, I wouldn't use it, but I did. I'm sorry. Uh, The plain of Ono, we don't know where it is. Uh, Yoko may be there. I don't know. But all this week, I've been saying it like this, the plane of, oh, no. Because this is how fear works on us. It pulls us off the wall and says, oh, no. There's things down here that you need to be concerned about. Fear distracts us. And that's the first thing it does. And notice how persistent it is. This is a nagging request to come off the wall. They do it four times. And so uh, the way uh, distraction works is that it, it, there are nagging uh, issues There are nagging concerns, nagging worries, nagging anxieties that are calling you away from your main work into the plane of Ono. Now, we usually don't think about uh, distraction as fear, but it is, because distraction is essentially worry, and it takes you away from your main work. I was uh, reading, uh, there was a cartoon this week, a little cartoon that I saw, which uh, featured a man in his bedroom, and he was on his bed, and he was on the telephone, and he had a, a legal a notepad in, in his hand uh, on which he was scribbling something. And in the caption below the cartoon, uh, the man was pictured as saying, uh, you know, whenever I have anxiety, whenever I can't sleep at, at night, I find it helpful to jot down some of my anxieties to get them out. And then the cartoon panned away to his whole room, And every square inch of the room was covered with legal notepads uh, on which were written, uh, you know, calories, recession, divorce, student loans, money, job, bills, all over the room. And if we're honest, that scene resembles our interior lives, doesn't it? Our insides are covered with scribbles with the cares of life. And and if we're not careful, all of these little cares, these nagging requests for our attention will distract us from our main work. Remember in the New Testament, it was Mary and Martha who were sitting down to dinner with with Jesus. And uh, Mary, she sits at the feet of Jesus and learns from his teaching. 
And Martha, meanwhile, is busy in the kitchen. And she's doing dishes, and she's cleaning, and she's getting ready. And at one point she says, Jesus, tell Mary to get up and help me. And uh, Jesus looks at her and says, Martha, Mary has chosen the better thing. He says, you're worried and upset about many things, but there is one thing that is needful. So this is how fear works. It'll distract you away from the one thing that's needful. There's one thing in your life. There are main things for you. Your family, your ministry, uh, your children. That's your main work. That's the, that's the wall you're building. And what fear does, it'll, it'll try to distract you and worry about all these lesser things. This is how it works with me. I, I, you know, one of the things I try to do every day is read my Bible. I try to get up early before the kids are awake, and I try to read my Bible. And, uh, you know, usually, inevitably, when I get up and it's in the morning, nobody else is awake, I'll open up my laptop to read my Bible, and up comes little messenger, uh, uh, little pop-ups from my email server. And little emails that say, you know, Brent, we need your help with that, you know, and I look at it, it's like, oh, no, the plane of oh, no distracting me from my main work, trying to say, come off the wall. Distraction, this is the first thing. Now, how does uh, Nehemiah fight distraction? Notice, Nehemiah fights distraction with the single focus. And this is what we need to do. Notice how he answers the distraction. Verse 3, he says, um, <clears throat> I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Tell that to your worries next time you're bothered by them. You look at your worries and you say, look, I'm doing a great work. There's a main thing I'm about in the world. There's a calling that I have. There are important things in my life. Why should I leave them to go after you? You need to remind yourself of what's vital, what's crucial, and what's not. And seek first the kingdom of God and all the other things will be taken care of. And so he fights distraction with a single focus. That's the first thing. But then <clears throat> notice fear comes again, and distraction didn't work. Nehemiah said, nope, I'm staying on the wall. And so uh, the fear is going to up the ante. It's going to try something a little bit more threatening to pull Nehemiah down. And what Nehemiah does this time is, is it tries to stop the work with intimidation. Notice uh, what happens here. <clears throat> this is verse 5. In the same way, Sambalad, for the fifth time, sent uh, his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. <clears throat> and you have also uh, set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But, O oh God, strengthen my hands. And so the second thing that, that fear comes to do is to intimidate us. And specifically, fear, uh, in this case, it uses a threatening letter. Uh, Tobiah comes with an open letter, it says, an, a, a very threatening open letter. And uh, wh what does the letter say? Well, the, the letter has a cataclysmic vision of the future. 
It's, an ins- it's a tedious argument of insidious intent. And this is what it says. It says, you know what, Nehemiah, people are talking. Uh, all the nations and even Geshem, that people are talking. And this is what they're saying. They're saying that you want to rebel from the king. That the whole reason why you're building the wall is that you want to rebel. You're, you're going you're gonna to threaten the king's authority. You're going to set yourself up as an authority. And the, the king's going to hear this. He's going to be mad and you're going to be in danger. What is this? This is intimidation. And notice this type of fear is always about the future. It's a vision of the future. And someone once said that, that the, the basic element of fear is, is fear of the unknown. It's a fear of the what-ifs. You know, none of us know the future, but some of us, you know, we think about it all the time, and it's filled with what-ifs. You know, what if we get divorced? What if I get sick? What if this happens? What if that happens? People are talking. You need to be worried. This is a fear. It's a, it's a cataclysmic vision of the future. Uh, Ed Welch uh, said that worriers are visionaries minus the optimism. And if fear can get us to live in the future and to, and to, to think about the future in, in dire proportions, It'll stop us in the present. It'll paralyze us. Um, you know, recently I've been taking some personality uh, tests, and I think I've told you about them, but uh, one of the, the tests I took was the Myers-Briggs. Anybody heard of the Myers-Briggs? And uh, anybody hate the Myers-Briggs? I hate the Myers-Briggs. I always feel bad about myself after I take these exams. <clears throat> but um, I took it, and I, I learned that I was an INFP, or an LMLJ, or so I forget what it was, but... I was a certain personality, and the one thing I remember about it is that the type of personality I have is someone who lives radically in the future. And so I'm always in the future. I'm thinking about the future. I'm always, you know, way up there thinking about what's next, what's next, what's next. And the problem with this is sometimes I, you know, I start worrying about the future, and it paralyzes me. Now I can't do anything now. Thinking about the the unknown, the what-ifs. And the fear of the future, it's always irrational, isn't it? Fear like this is always visceral, right? It's it's not really a rational fear. And therefore, you can't always fight it with rational arguments. You can't say, oh, that's not going to happen or that's highly unlikely. It doesn't work that way. And in fact, the letter that Tobiah and Sambalad sent to Nehemiah, it's totally irrational. I mean, Nehemiah was sent to Jerusalem by the king. He doesn't think he's about Nehemiah. He doesn't think this way about him. This is an irrational letter, but fear is irrational. It's visceral. Um, it's, it, it's fantasy. It has to do with your imagination and your emotions. You know, think about it. Some of you who, who are afraid of flying, you know, you can hear that flying is safer than driving. You know, you can hear all the arguments, but when you get on the plane, what do you think? You have these visions of the thing going down. You know, you remember the twilight zone of the monster on the wing, right? And you know, that was a joke, um, and you know this is not uh, real, and you know this is fantasy, but fear is not rational. It plays on your imagination, and it also plays on your insecurities. Uh, This intimidation, this fear of the future, it plays on your insecurities. Uh, It it works, it it knows, you know, it, it knows exactly what you're most frightened of. And it's going to make that vision of the future about that one thing. 
Notice the letter is, it's, what does it say to Nehemiah? It says, people are talking, Nehemiah. Oh, you should really care about what the king is thinking. You know, I don't know Nehemiah, but I would guess that one of his idols is the fear of man. I would guess that one of his idols is approval, pleasing people. And so this is exactly what the letter goes after. And fear always plays on your insecurities. insecurities. It plays on your idolatries. It plays upon, it knows what your ultimate values are, and it begins to work on those. You know, whenever you're afraid, you should always follow the smoke of fear down to the fire of idolatry. Because whenever one of your idols is threatened, you are terrified. And for me, you know, one of my idols is approval. I need you all to like me. And so fear will come to me and say, Brent, people are talking. Oh, people are talking, and you know what they're saying? It's really bad, and I can't sleep at night. But maybe for some of you, your idol is money. And when the stock market plummets, suddenly you're terrified. Why? It's one of your idols is being threatened, and you're thinking about the future. Some of you, your idol is beauty. You know, this is what, it's it's become something ultimate for you. It's not just good that you're beautiful. You need to be beautiful. And so when you age and your beauty begins to fade, you're terrified. Fear threatens your idols. Uh, It it works on your insecurities. And if you you ever want to know what your idols are, what you're living for, follow your fear and see where it leads you. Well, how does Nehemiah answer this fear? What does Nehemiah say to it? Notice uh, they they say, look, this is going to happen in the future. Uh, It's it's totally irrational, but hey, you need to be afraid of it. You know, they give him this this, uh, vision, this cataclysmic vision. And what does he do? Notice in verse uh, 8, this is what he says. He says, no such things as you have to say have been done. And you are inventing them out of your own mind. I love that. It's all in your mind. (laughs) You know, that's one of the things you can do. Hey, this is not real. This is all in your mind. But he doesn't stop there. Notice what else he does. He prays. He says, for, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. And notice he says, but O oh God, strengthen my hands. How do you fight the, the fear of intimidation? You fight it with a prayer for strength. Now notice he doesn't pray a prayer and say, oh God, don't let that horrible thing happen up there. Don't let that horrible thing happen in the future. He doesn't pray that God would snap his divine fingers and and make everything right for him all the time. Instead, he says, Lord, strengthen my hands for whatever it is that's coming. Listen, if you get up in the morning and your constant prayer is, God, don't let anything bad happen to me today, that prayer is probably not going to work. Instead, you should pray, God, strengthen me to face whatever happens. Lord, strengthen my hands to face whatever, you know, thing that's inevitably going to come into my path today. He faces it with a prayer for strength, and that's how you battle the fear of intimidation about the future. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a doctor who later became a minister, and he talked about this in terms of viruses. And he says, look, there are viruses all over uh, the world. Uh, You know, they're, they're threatening to make you sick everywhere. And he says, there's two ways to fight viruses. You can either try to eliminate all of them. You know, you wear a a, a mask, you wash your hands after you go to the restroom, which is a good idea, by the way. Uh, You try to eliminate all the viruses. But he says, that's never going to work. Viruses are everywhere. 
and you'll never get rid of all of them. But he says there's another way you can fight viruses. He says you could strengthen the composition of your body. He says, you know, get good exercise, get fresh air, eat right. And he says you strengthen your core, you strengthen your composition to face all the viruses that are inevitably going to be out there. And this is Nehemiah's prayer in the face of intimidation. I know it's out there. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? There are all these what-ifs. God, I'm not going to pray that you don't ever let anything bad happen to me. Things are going to happen. Things fall apart. But God, strengthen my hands to deal with whatever comes. He faces intimidation with a prayer for strength. And so number one, the, the fear works on us through distraction. We fight it with a single mind. Second of all, the the second way it works on us is through intimidation. We fight it with a prayer for strength. God, give me strength to face whatever comes out there. But then finally, uh, we're going to see that they they bring another thing to him. Another way fear works on us is through debilitation. It's through uh, stopping us in our tracks, through uh, debilitating us. This is verse 19. Now, when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the, the son of Mehetabel, who is confined to, his, confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should, should such a man as I run away? <clears throat> and, and, what, uh, and what man such as I could go to, into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God did not send him, and he had pronounced the prophecy against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid, and act in this way, and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nohiadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid." So the final thing that fear does is it, it tries to debilitate him. And it does it through a false prophecy. This is what happens. Uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, they hire a Jewish guy to come to Nehemiah and say, Nehemiah, you're vulnerable up here on the wall. And, you know, you know the enemies of God, they, they want to kill you. They want to kill you by night. You're in danger. So, Run into the temple. Go inside the walls. Run into the temple. Lock that door and be safe. So what is this fear trying to do? It's trying to say, it's trying to debilitate Nehemiah and tell him, look, you're in danger, Nehemiah. And what you need to do is go in, run in, hide, you know, wrap yourself all around with securities and be safe. Go into the temple, turn inward and lock the door and never come out. This is what fear tells you. Uh, and some of you are there this morning, you know, you're, you're, you've turned inward and you, you've, you've cocooned yourself all around with securities because you're terrified. And, and this is exactly where fear wants you. It wants to isolate you. It wants to debilitate you. It wants to paralyze you. It wants to stop you from moving. It wants you to go into the temple and lock the door. Now, uh, this is a false prophecy and it's not a false prophecy because Nehemiah is not in danger. Nehemiah actually is in danger. What this guy tells him is exactly right. There are people that are out to kill Nehemiah. And and Nehemiah is vulnerable on the wall. 
And I hate to tell you this, but did you know that you're in danger? Did you know that life is inherently dangerous? You know, we live in a broken world. We live on a spinning rock that's flying through the galaxy. Are we safe? No, we're always in danger. Every second, every minute, danger is right around the corner. Uh, You know, I was reading an article this past week about how how, uh, dangerous the world is. And it had all these examples, and it gave this example of uh, turn of the century in London, there was this big vat of beer that exploded. And it exploded onto the streets of uh, London. And it said that, that eight people drowned there on the streets of London in beer. Now some of you say, well, if you've got to go, <laughs> it's not a bad way. But listen, we're n- none of us are ever really safe. Uh, there's another little story, a little example it gave of, uh, there's a big vat of molasses in the city of Boston, which also exploded. And it went pouring into the streets and killed 21 people in molasses. Uh, 21 very slow people, apparently. Um, Eek, molasses, run for your lives, right? (laughs) But on a serious note, some of you work in the emergency room, and you know you could be sitting and watching television one minute and be suffering from a heart attack the next. You know, some of you who have, you know, experienced tragedy, you know, things were just normal one day, the next day things fell apart. Listen, life is inherently dangerous. We are vulnerable. All of us are all the time. And you say, well, I'm going to become a Christian and Jesus is going to keep me safe. No, Christianity is even more dangerous. You know, if you follow Jesus, life gets a lot more uh, difficult. And you'll face a whole new set of problems and difficulties and fears just because you're following Jesus. And so the, this false prophecy, it's not wrong because he's saying you're in danger. Yes, he is in danger. But notice the, what he, the conclusion he draws. He says, Nehemiah, you're in danger, you're vulnerable, and this is what you need to do. Run inside, go inside, lock the door, and never come out. That's wrong. Fear, fear will always say, look, you know, life is dangerous. You need to just stop risking. Life is dangerous. You need to just kind of cocoon yourself in. Life is dangerous. You need to stop reaching out, and you need to just turn inward and take care of yourself. Cornelius Plantanga puts it this way perfectly. He said, some of us retreat into the small world defined by our friends, work, church, and family, and build a snuggery there. I love the word snuggery, by the way. It reminds me of a snuggie. And uh, some of you know snuggies. Uh, Your fear says, wrap yourself in a snuggie. Inside it, we may be busy enough, but with only local concerns. Perhaps on television, we watch with disdain or amazement the passing show of misery, novelty, and grief in the larger world outside. But if our insulation is good enough, we needn't be significantly disturbed by it. Insulate yourself. Hey, listen, you've been hurt before. You just need to turn in. And you just stop taking risks. But listen, uh, there's a danger inside the temple. The danger's not just out there. There's a danger of turning in. There's a danger of locking the door. It's just as dangerous in there, as safe as you are, as it is out there. 
Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, um, he's talking about love here, and he says, to love anything and to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it, wrap it carefully around with hobbies and luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Your heart will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love it all is to be vulnerable. So Lewis says, look, the very essence of life is love. And love is inherently dangerous. And the only way to protect yourself from that is just to stay away from it. Don't risk it all. Nothing. Just turn yourself in, cocoon yourself up, and never take a risk at all. But the danger is you will die in that temple. You will lose your life in that temple because Jesus said, whoever seeks to protect his life and save his life will lose it. And whoever gives his life away will save it. There is life in the risk. And so how does Nehemiah fight this last uh, fear that's trying to paralyze him and tell him just to turn in? What does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah simply says, should such a man like me run away? How do you fight debilitating fear? With good old-fashioned courage. With grit. You feel the fear, and you do it anyway. Because that's where life is, you know? That's where love is. That's where following Jesus happens. It happens on the edge of danger. And sometimes you just need to feel that fear and follow Jesus anyway. Uh, One more story. When I was younger, my, um, and some of you have heard this before, I know. But my dad used to take me and my brother down to Laguna Beach in California. And uh, he used to take us out in the big waves in this big black inner tube. And I remember as a young boy, I was timid, and I, kn- I wanted to stay on the beach all the time. No, I don't want to go out there. Uh, I want to stay here on the beach. I don't want to go out in the scary waves. But I noticed that there, the danger of staying on the beach is boredom, you know? And so one day I just went out, took a chance, went out in the waves with my dad. He took me and my brother, and there we were bobbing around in the surf in this big black inner tube. And a big wave came, and he pushed us into it. And Laguna Beach, the waves break directly on the sand. Big curls, it's called Crescent Bay, boom, right on the sand. And I remember looking down at dry sand and thinking, my dad wants to kill me. And then smashing on the sand and getting scraped up and sand in my pants and sand in my shirt. But I remember two emotions from that childhood terror. Two emotions, fear and excitement. Fear and excitement. And I thought to myself, this is what it's like to follow Jesus. This is what it's like to live. And listen, there's dangers everywhere. They're never going to go away. And following Jesus is inherently dangerous. But what do we do? We've got to build the wall. And we say no to distraction. And we pray for strength in the face of intimidation. And we just, just 
bear up our arms and we, and we go straight into this, this fear of debilitation. And you say, well, how do I get that courage? I mean, how, how do I... How do I keep from from being afraid? Well, listen, Nehemiah, all the way through the story here, I mean, the main reason why Nehemiah stepped out of the palace in the first place into the dangerous walls of Jerusalem is way in the beginning, he tells us, he says, I knew that the good hand of God was upon me. And listen, this is the only way that you will ever conquer your fear. You need to know that the good hand of God is on you. How do you know that God's hand is good? Well, God, God's hands in the person of Jesus were pierced through on a cross for you. You know that he's good. And those hands are before you and behind you and all around you. And God says, rise up and build. Move forward in life. God's got things for you to do. Do not let fear threaten your work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you uh, give us chapter 6 in Nehemiah. It's so practical, and <clears throat> we pray that you would help us as we, as we build. Lord, uh, fear works on all of us in various ways. Some of us, it's through distraction. Some of us, through fear of, of the future. Other, others of us, it's, it's through this desire to turn in and to stay, to stay safe. Uh, Lord, I pray... Uh, all of us, God, know what you're calling us to do. I pray that you give us courage to do it. Uh, gospel courage, courage that comes from knowing that you are the God who gave your life for us. You faced everything so that we could uh, serve you in this world. Uh, strengthen us, Lord, so that we may go forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.